You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music jazz is undeniably one of america's greatest contributions to the world but rock listeners sometimes have a hard time finding their way in i'm jim dirigatis and i'm greg cott so to make it a little less daunting today we're offering the rock fans guide to jazz Then Jim will put a song into the Desert Island jukebox. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and Greg, later in the show, we are going to deal with the world of jazz from the perspective of rock fans. You know, when I was a kid growing up across the Hudson River from Manhattan, I had some great experience. I could see Art Blakey play in the village. I got to see Les Paul. I don't think I appreciated it at the time. Jazz kind of hurt my little brain. Well, if we got a show for you, Jim, we're going to help you out and a lot of other people who are in the same boat in terms of coming to jazz from a rock perspective. That's going to be later on, but first we've got some music news. That is the Norwegian pop phenom, Uh Aha. Greg, I think I have trouble even thinking of another band from Norway ever. Why are we playing a group from that country? Norway made international news. It's going to become, in 2017, the first country in the world to permanently turn off FM radio, to stop broadcasts on what's called terrestrial radio in favor of digital radio. Now, Norway only has five FM radio stations right now. They've already got 22 national stations on digital radio, but the Ministry of Culture in that country is saying this is a move that will allow Norwegians to access, quote, more diverse and pluralistic radio content and enjoy better sound quality. The reason this is interesting is people are saying eventually around the world, every country is going to get rid of its terrestrial radio, its AM and FM. In America, uh, something like 90% of people still listen to AM or FM radio at least once a year. You know, obviously I have a real fondness for FM radio, he said, on the FM radio broadcast as well as the podcast. I don't know how I feel about this digital future. Cuando no la llamo. Siempre me hace reclamo Discutimos, peleamos Pero llego a casa en la noche La molesto y arreglamos that is Jay Valvine, the Colombian artist who is currently topping the Billboard Latin charts. And the reason we're bringing it up, Jim, is that the International Federation of the Phonographic Industry has just issued its year-end report for 2014. And we're talking about a big musical world out there. You know, in, in terms of the United States, we tend to be a bit myopic. We tend to think that everything that happens in the music industry revolves around the United States and really don't re- 
pay attention to trends around the world. But it's interesting to note that in countries throughout Latin America, music is booming. The picture sometimes we get in the U.S. is that, well, things are are topsy-turvy and digital's dominating physical sales. In Latin America, the trend is exactly the opposite. Fourth consecutive year, Latin America is the fastest-growing region for music sales worldwide. Revenue rose 7.3% in the last year, and overall digital revenue was up 30 Two percent. The fascinating aspect of physical supposedly dying, physical product dying in the United States, that trend is contradicted throughout the world. Japan and Germany, physical sales were up 78 percent and 70 percent. Global vinyl sales, a massive 55 percent increase in vinyl sales. So physical product is still very much alive and well outside of the United States. And we've done a bunch of stories, Jim, in recent years about China being this hotbed for bootleggers. Well, it's starting to pick up. It's the most populous country in the world. It only ranks number 19 in the music industry because of all this piracy going on. But there are signs that China is finally developing a genuine music economy. The sales of music were up 5.6% in the last year, topping $100 million for the first time. Digital revenue was up to $91 million over the previous year's $82 million. There are a lot of people who are talking about the key to the music industry turnaround as being in China, and there are signs that it is happening now. So there's a lot of, a lot of stuff happening in the world outside of the U.S. The U.S. is still the largest music market, $4.9 billion in sales. But Japan's music economy is twice the size of what the U.K. is. You're looking at great markets in Germany, France, Australia, Canada. There are other markets out there where the music industry is booming, contrary to what's happening in the United States. And this latest report by the IFPI totally underlines that. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and that's Freddie Freeloader from Miles Davis's 1959 album, Kind of Blue. That's the best-selling jazz record of all time. Now, if you're a rock fan and you own only one jazz album, that's probably going to be it. But a lot of listeners who'd like to dive deeper into jazz don't know where to go from there. And I can certainly sympathize, because it took me a long time to get into jazz. Some people find it intimidating and highbrow. Other people think it's old-fashioned and staid and boring. And some people will be permanently scarred forever for mistaking something like Kenny G for jazz. It ain't. If you can put all that behind you and find a way in, jazz is one of the most exciting and rewarding experiences in all of music. And most importantly for us, it can help you better appreciate rock and pop. Maybe the biggest obstacle is there's so much jazz out there. I mean, it's hard to figure out what you like. The earliest jazz was developed by African Americans in New Orleans over a century ago. Then there's swing. Bebop. Cool jazz. Soul jazz. 
vocal jazz. Free jazz. Fusion. And everything in between. And people forget it's okay not to like everything you hear. Rock's the same way. Just because you don't like the Eagles doesn't mean you won't love Chuck Berry. You might hate Duran Duran and worship Slater Kinney. It all comes down to figuring out what speaks to you. So to help guide you in that process, today we're offering the Rock Fan's Guide to Jazz. We're joined in the studio by writer and curator John Corbett. John's a regular contributor to Downbeat Magazine, the author of the book Extended Play, as well as two upcoming books about improvised music. John, welcome to Sound Opinions. Pleasure to be here. You've been involved in jazz in many areas in Chicago for the last several decades. How did you get into the music in the first place? Well, jazz was, for me, a music that I came to as a post-punk uh, listener, really. I kind of crossed the divide in the record store first. Uh, I was a young post-punk fan listening to groups like The Slits and The Fall and the pop group. And one day in the record store, I looked across at the vast sea of jazz that I knew nothing about and just decided to jump in. If you don't know where to start, it's hugely daunting because I remember I got into it when I was in college and, you know, people kept talking about this John Coltrane character. And I figured, okay, you know, I'm here's a kid grew up listening to like Grand Funk Railroad, you know, really sophisticated. And suddenly, you know, you hear the MC5 talking about John Coltrane and go, all right, I got to check this out. So I buy, you know, Live at the Village Vanguard 2. Had no idea what I'm doing. Like, wrong place to start with John Coltrane. At least <laughs> yep. somebody knows nothing about yep. it. <laughs> You're coming at it from a similar perspective of what we're talking about in this show a rock listener who came to jazz. So in a way, we're going to learn from your mistakes, right? Finding out what, uh, you know, what jazz was all about. What turned you on? What made you think, wow, as a rock listener, this jazz stuff is really speaking to me now. What was the, was there a light bulb moment like that for you? Really, I think the thing that I began to understand pretty quickly and was a connection between the musics was that jazz puts an emphasis on kind of individual personal vocabulary, personal, you know, these musicians have developed something that's uniquely their own. And I could mm -hmm. relate to that. I thought that was the thing that you tried to do as a rock musician, too. You tried to have your own feel. You tried to have your own voice. The big challenge for me, I think, which I suspect is a challenge for a lot of people, is uh, that it's instrumental music. Not exclusively, but a lot of it is instr mm -hmm. instrumental music. Right. And if you're used to listening to lyrics and kind of basing what you're doing around enjoying the lyrics and then also enjoying the riffs and the grooves and so on, that's the first order of business. And I, you know, I think listening to an Ornette Coleman record early on, which was like leaping into the deep end of the pool, really turned me on because I just didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what was going on in it, but I knew I really, I liked how it made me feel. I liked the sense of being a little bit lost in it.
just give us a quick overview of somebody stepping into jazz in 2015. What obstacles will that person face to getting into the music that, say, maybe are different from the obstacles you may have faced as a young listener getting into it? I think the biggest obstacle is the sense uh, that this is fuddy-duddy music or that this is music that's not cool. And it's sad because in a way, you know, jazz was the original hipster music. It was the original cool music. The original gangster music in a lot of ways. Sure, yeah. I mean, Dizzy Gillespie was... A badass. Mm-hmm. There's just no way around it. And a lot of the, you know, a lot of that music from the 1940s, when the music was self-consciously becoming an art music, was also about kind of taking charge and turning these small groups into really deadly, sharp vehicles. I'm thinking of the attitude, though, John, the preciousness. This is something to be preserved and curated and put in the museum. It's not alive. I hate that. Yeah. I think there's not misinformation, but a sort of misattitude, exactly what you're pointing out, Jim. It's this kind of crazy sense that it's a museum music or that it's already finished. That's a sensibility that you have to get over. Um, You know, I grew up sort of with this vague impression that jazz had something to do with Lawrence Welk when I was a kid. And (laughs) I think that's the deadliest thing you could possibly Mm. think. Yeah, it was kind of, as you said, fuddy-duddy music. So people have this impression in, in their heads that it's not relevant to their lives anymore. But what you're saying is that there's still danger to be found. There's still excitement to And be there's found. still joy. You look at, you know, it's not virtuosity uber alles. You look at that movie Whiplash, which just drove me crazy. You know, it was all about technique and no celebration of the joy of making music. And there was nothing about jazz in that movie. No. Was I rushing or was I dragging? Uh-huh. Count again. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Rushing or dragging? Rushing. So you do know the difference. You never would see uh, somebody bloodying their hands trying to play as fast as possible. No, no, no. There was nothing about nuance in that in that movie, which is ridiculous because that's what's so exciting right. about jazz, or that's certainly one of the most exciting things about it is the nuance. And it's also, if you're a real rock aficionado, I think that's also, you know, the differences between John Bonham's beat and Bunny Carlos's, you know, approach mm-hmm. to rhythm are subtle and are what makes it fun. So let's dive into the music, John. I, I am a jazz ignoramus. I am curious, <laughs> and I'm actually amusing I correctly. I, I've got my two dozen, you know, I've got the Coltrane box set, I've got the Mingus, you know, and I figure when I retire, then I'll spend the rest of whatever brain power is left diving deep into jazz. But let's assume somebody has that time now. Where would you start with the rock fans? I I, want to dive in. I don't want to be lost like you were in the beginning. You know, send me somewhere, John. I'm going to send you to 1956. Sonny Rollins is one of the greatest tenor saxophone players uh, in jazz history. He was around playing in the bebop era, the end of the bebop era, and uh, really made his mark in the 1950s and 60s. He's still alive, still playing, and still playing great. So this is a Sonny Rollins track from 1956 from a record called Saxophone Colossus. And it's a quartet with the great Max Roach on drums and Doug Watkins on bass, Tommy Flanagan on piano. It's 
called Strode Road and what I think is so exciting about it and what makes it something that would be of interest to someone who's listening to rock mostly is this sense of forward propulsion. I mean, this is really moving music. And Max Roach isn't a heavy-handed drummer at all. He's a very light drummer, but he has power. One of the things that they talk about with Max Roach is that he played, quote-unquote, melodic drums. He tuned his drums very specifically, and he would add this kind of lightness of feeling to it so that it had a kind of melodic aspect. The big difference between rock rhythm and jazz rhythm has to do with this sense of feel and a sense of swing. Yeah. But really, having a sense of swing isn't just a matter of varying the beat. It's actually a very complicated thing, but you know it when you feel it, mm-hmm. and it moves you along, and it's a little bit different. And I think it's there at the—it's been pulled back down to its essence in rock rhythm. I mean, rock music has jazz also in its history, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, jump blues, you know, that goes back to swing. Now, if you ever been down to New Orleans, then you can understand just what I mean. Now, all through the week, it's quiet as a mouse, but on Saturday night, they go from house to house. You the evolution of these genres has happened in some ways dovetailing, uh, coming back together and moving apart. We're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we'll continue the Rock Fan's Guide to Jazz with writer John Corbett. And later on, I'll drop a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Now my buddy and me was on the main stem. Fooling around just me and him We decided we could use a little something to eat So we went to a house on Rampart Street We knocked on the door and it opened with ease And a lush little miss said, come in please And before we could even bat an eye We were right in the middle of a big fish fry It was rocking It was rocking You never see such scuffling and shuffling Till the break of dawn
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis. Today we're presenting a rock band's guide to jazz, offering some possible entry points for the uninitiated. Our guide is jazz writer and curator John Corbett. We started by listening to Strode Road, a hard bop tune by Sonny Rollins from 1956. John, what would you play next for our novice jazz listener? Well, I think I'm going to go back in time a little bit to 1929, and this is a track by a guy named Louis Russell, who was Panamanian pianist and uh, band leader. Eventually, in the 30s, he became Louis Armstrong's band mm. and band, lead, band leader, uh, musical director for a while. But this is when he was leading his own band. It's a song called The New Call of the Freaks. Uh, there's a minor key vibe thing that's going on uh, and it's such an eerie strange Mm -hmm. sound even in jazz from 1929 you find this kind of expanded sense of what is possible And the lyrics to this, because there are very sparse lyrics, include a line that goes, put out your can, here comes the garbage man. <laughs> and I think, you know, some enterprising rock band's got to come along and well, snap over that lyrics yeah. up, right? Pick out your can, here comes the garbage man. I think some people listening to jazz feel a real sense of distance that needs to be overcome, especially when you're talking about older recordings like these. Isn't jazz a genre that just has to be experienced live? I didn't understand that for a long time. I was, a, you know, I'm a record fan. I'm a record mm-hmm. maniac. So I was listening to it on record, and when I started seeing it live, it changed everything about it for me. Fans of rock get a taste of that. But to me, the most exciting thing about seeing jazz live was seeing the musicians looking at each other and interacting in real time, and nobody really knows what the next move is going to be. And they have to be listening to each other and reacting to that in real time. And when you see that being done really well at a very high level, there's nothing in rock that can touch it. The other thing about solos, since we're talking about that, is that the whole idea of the solo in rock, the longer solo in rock, we think about that some, I don't know, think vaguely that it might have something to do with blues or something like that. It's much more closely related to jazz than it is to blues. Mm-hmm. Because extrapolating at length on something is something that jazz musicians do as a matter of course. It's not something that goes on in certainly in 30s blues and in Mm. 40s blues. You start to see it a little bit more in electric blues, but not even that much then. So the idea of the solo as a statement is really a jazz idea. 
So as jazz moves up out of its early days in New Orleans and Chicago, it enters the swing era where you see big bands cropping up in fancy nightclubs in Harlem and other places. The artist uh, we probably associate most with that era is Duke Ellington. Just for people who have no idea, John, who was Duke Ellington? Yeah, Duke Ellington is a piano player and composer and band leader whose music from the 1920s until the 1970s was at the forefront of uh, jazz, Most imp- one of the most important band leaders and composers of that period. Super debonair, unbelievably smart, unbelievably together, and an insanely great composer. I'm going to make the case that if we're going back to talking about solos, he has this piece from 1940 called Concerto for Cootie, which is written for his lead trumpet player, Cootie Williams. Mm -hmm. And if you're a fan of guitar played with effects and you're a fan of guitar that uses feedback, you listen to this track where he's playing mute plunger on the trumpet. And this whole piece has been written with not just trumpet in mind, but the special techniques of Cootie Williams. Mm. I think that's a place you can go to find great interest in Duke Ellington as a rock fan. Listening to Sound Opinions, I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and we're joined today by jazz critic John Corbett. Um, John, as a self-professed jazz ignoramus, my image of the swing era is of big bands wearing tuxedos, playing very polite, very boring music. Let me put it this way. Let's think about what kinds of stage shows were involved in jazz at that time. And this idea that it was a button-down music may need to be interrogated a little bit. There were big groups doing it. But for instance, in some places there might be a huge stage show that would include shimmy dancers, fire dancers, and fire eaters, <laughs> right? Basically the kinds of things that predate our concept of what the rock stage show might be later. And the guy who kind of made the bridge between those things was a musician named Sun Ra, who actually really started using light shows and elaborate stage shows long before anybody in rock was doing it. Since we're talking about rock and jazz, let's get this term fusion out on the table. (laughs) Yeah, And it has such a bad rap. For good reasons. Weather uh, report. Weather <laughs> report, yeah. Well, there's good weather report. I like good early yeah, some weather stuff report. Is great. Some of it's fantastic, yeah. And some um, of it's not. 
People think of that fusion being a fusion between jazz and rock, and it's often called jazz-rock fusion. The music that Miles Davis was making in the late 1960s, I think, is much more appropriately called jazz-funk fusion. What it brings from rock, it brings from people like Jimi Hendrix. And what it brings from there is really the experimental side. And Miles Davis was also interested in Carl Heinz Stockhausen. He was interested in modern contemporary classical music. So he had a really interesting perspective on bringing all sorts of things together. And he was interested in James Brown, as any normal person would have been at that point and should be now and Sly and the Family Stone. And so he brought a lot of those tributaries together and made music in which he sought to put himself on a kind of international platform. Like, he was shooting to be one of the biggest stars in the world of any kind. And he didn't see that there was any reason that coming out of playing jazz and playing jazz, you shouldn't be able to do that. And he made in the process, you know, at least one of but a whole string of records, one of the greatest records of the genre early on called Bitches Brew. I'd like to play one track from that called Miles Runs the Voodoo Down, which has John McLaughlin on guitar and is as good a case for sticking with fusion as anything <laughs> could be. Again, to go back to this sense of the kind of badassness of jazz, Miles Davis was interested in style. He mm. was interested in being taken seriously as a celebrity. He was interested in who was hanging on his arm, you know. And civil he, rights. He was very interested in civil rights. He was concerned that the places that you could be really, really, really well-known as a celebrity, as an African-American, we're really in sports and in music and entertainment. For him, making a record called Jack Johnson really celebrated that confluence of those possibilities. So he's a really interesting, really complex guy. Well, I'd like to second what John said about uh, this period of Miles, because I think my light bulb moment with jazz was the Jack Johnson record, because it does have that crossover with the electric guitar. And Miles was paying attention to that stuff. You know, there was a lot of fuss made over Miles selling out, and why is he paying attention to Hendrix and Sly Stone and people like this? He's not pure anymore, when in fact Miles was creating something new out of, out of that material. And I think that period of time was you know, incredibly underrated in his vocabulary by you know, subsequent jazz critics who sort of dismiss a lot of that era. You obviously do not, John. I absolutely do not. No, there are people who dismiss him out of hand after a certain point yeah. because of that, and especially within the the Marsalis camp, that's the party line um, that the music became degenerated, I think is one of the terms that gets thrown around yeah. uh, You know, at that point, which I think is just totally wrong. 
As if coloring outside the lines automatically makes you a degenerate. Right, exactly. Yeah. After a quick break, we'll wrap up our discussion with critic John Corbett about jazz for rock listeners. And we want to invite you to share your thoughts on this topic. Call 888-859-1800. Then Jim will take a trip out to the desert island. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis, and we're presenting the Rock Fan's Guide to Jazz alongside jazz critic John Corbett. John, we were talking earlier about the controversy Miles Davis created during his fusion days, but the one guy who got stick from the minute he put his lips to a saxophone was Ornette Coleman. And I think he's one of the most influential figures in building a bridge to the rock audience. He is, yeah. You know, Ornette, to give a little bit of that, the story with him, He's the one who really, for a lot of the jazz press, was the the one who sort of put everything on the line in the late 1950s by starting to color outside the lines. I mean, starting to play without meticulous attention to following the chord changes the Mm. way they were played. But instead what he does is he loosens all that up so the solos don't necessarily relate exactly to what's going on underneath them and he caught crazy flack for that mm-hmm. and uh, but it was the kind of revolution that also got him a lot of attention and really introduced a whole bunch of people to what was then subsequently called free jazz this track that we're going to listen to is called voice poetry and it features uh, ronald shannon jackson on drums and it has two electric guitar players playing in really different modalities burn nix and charles ellerby one playing kind of fuzzed out guitar and one playing very clean jazz style big hollow body guitar and a bass player that any rock funk listener should be totally flipped out over named John Ladine Takuma and what I like about this track also is that for the rock listener it has a Bo Diddley beat I mean there's they, they're skewing a Bo Diddley beat so you listen to the rhythm and then listen to the way that he's floating this set of saxophone melodies over the top of this, you know, familiar sounding beat.
Sonic Youth, The Velvet Underground, The MC5, The Stooges of Funhouse, they're all talking about Coleman. What are they getting from what he did? Well, they're getting that he's really talking about and in his music exemplifying a kind of liberated attitude about how the music can express itself, be expressed. And he is very interested in all the players in an ensemble having some kind of equal footing. So you start to see some changes in the roles that the instruments have in the ensemble. And at that time, also, the idea of really putting the pedal to the metal and playing as out as you could was something that appealed a lot to rock musicians. Uh, You know, being able to find some way out of the constrictions that you found yourself in. It's easy for me to explain why Sister Ray by the Velvet Underground is, uh, is great music, even though a lot of people think it's pure noise. But John, I have a harder time explaining to someone why Coleman or Albert Eiler, when they're just going absolutely insane, why those guys are great too. Some of that comes down to sensibility and one's own personal proclivities. Albert Eiler made my favorite record of all, of any kind, in any genre, uh, <laughs> Spiritual Unity. One of the greatest records, and I, because he laid everything out on the line. He said, this is music from scratch in a way, and it's, mm. it's so extreme. And yet it's so, to come back to a term that you introduced a long time ago, it's so joyful. People mm. really misunderstand him as it's scream for help, it's... Anger. A lot of people associated it with the anger of the um, civil rights movement. And there was an element of that, but there was also an element of joy. though I think was the master of that and I'll uh, you know I started to understand Ornette when I started realizing his saxophone is a substitute for the human voice it, it, it is the voice and there was a record he did of human feelings and I must have played that thing I, I wore out three copies of that one year I'm not kidding you I had to keep getting a new one because it was so beautiful and I would play it and my wife would just scream you know I don't like this why are you playing I go don't you hear that voice I think that's a great description. There's a plaintiveness to some of his playing. There's, there is an absolute underlying you know, humanity. I interviewed him about uh, maybe four years ago. One of the things he kept coming back to is he kept talking about life, human life, and he kept coming back to like trying to make contact mm. with life. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. I'm here with Greg Cott, and we're talking to jazz writer John Corbett. You know, my education in jazz came from rock critic Lester Bangs. He worshipped Lou Reed, but number two on his list was jazz bassist Charlie Mingus. And I think what they have in common is a certain attitude that says, Society, I ain't going to live the way you're telling me to. John, are there examples of jazz musicians now who are showing that sort of punk rock spirit? There are musicians working today who have adopted that sensibility to the very core of their being. And I think there's a saxophonist from Sweden named Mats Gustafsson, 
he's embodied that. He's got this sense of really not caring about what genre something's in, but also being rabidly fascinated by all of the differences between Brazilian tropicalia and hardcore and rap and, you know, jazz and improvised music and African music and ethnographic music and so on. And rock figures prominently in there. He has a band called The Thing. This particular track that we'll listen to comes from a record called Garage, on which they cover European free improviser Peter Brotzman, and they cover uh, White Stripes song, <laughs> and they cover this track called Have Love Will Travel by the Sonics. Listen to what Mats Gustafsson does on the tenor saxophone here, and tell me if that doesn't have some of that kind of energy that you listen for in a good feedback-driven guitar <laughs> solo. should also point out that the thing Mats Gustafson's band was with uh, Nana Cherry on her first record in 16 years which we yeah. reviewed on the show which we raved about the cherry thing which was a great record but it's still those are far the exceptions rather than threads that people are moving forward on one of the problems has been really nothing with the music per se but with where it's been available to see live since mm-hmm. it is so important to see live and it was something that um, I was interested in challenging at one point booking jazz and improvised music in a, in a rock venue what that did is it took it out of the sense that it was your father's music or right. your grandfather's music and it put that music which a lot of young people are interested in are curious about and it put it in a place that they didn't feel was not their own. Mm-hmm. Well, and the great, you know, this is a tragedy that we don't talk about often enough, and it's always worth reminding people, you know, the drinking age, barring so many super young and impressionable, you know, if you see something like The Thing, which you just played us at 15, you know, your life is going to be better, and it's definitely going to be changed. Well, right? my, but you can't, because you can't get into places. Absolutely. I mean, Mats, Mats Gustafsson's life was changed by hearing Peter Brotzman's Machine Gun mm-hmm. when he was 15 mm-hmm. in right. a little town in northern Sweden where they didn't have <laughs> anything else to do. So, John, the jazz influence in rock, it may not always be apparent Although you do see bands dabbling in it, I, I would say like in the jam band scene, for example, there's a lot of audience members who go out and see something like the Dave Matthews Band, and there's a 15-minute fiddle solo in the middle of the show. So how much of that is jazz-influenced? How much of that is just aimless showboating? Is it a doorway into getting into the real thing, quote-unquote, I was never a big Grateful Dead fan myself, honestly. And I I see the same problems with the way that they extrapolated jazz in a lot of that music, which is that it does have a noodly aspect. It 
doesn't have the conciseness or the kind of sense of concentration that I think really great jazz does. So I think in some cases people can get turned off to what they think jazz might be by mm. hearing things that they think, I'm not so interested in that. You know, this is just my opinion, but I really feel like there's an upper threshold of certain kinds of music in terms of audience in seeing it live. Mm. If you're seeing jazz in an audience of 55,000 people, I think it doesn't come over. I'm sorry. I just don't mm. think it comes over yeah. at all. You see it in an audience of 300 and you have a personal relationship to the person on stage. Mm -hmm. Punk is sort of the same way. Oh, yeah. You know, the best place to see that is in some, you know, your friend's basement. Yeah. It's interesting how it pops up. You know, I would argue that the last few Radiohead records, which have been looked on so askance by the OK computer crowd, like Where's the Guitars? I wrote a review of one of the records where they were really off the grid. And I'm saying, you know what I'm hearing in here is Herbie Hancock's Sextant, you know, from the 70s more than I'm hearing any you know, guitar-based rock influence, and everybody's like, kind of, what, what is that? I'm going, I'm pretty sure Tom York is listening to some of that music. Well, I mean, he used a big band. Yeah. Of course I like the we could go that direction, talking about the rock influence on jazz these days, yeah. which, in fact, Radiohead is a primary feature mm. of. You know, I mean, there's all mm -hmm. of these. Bjork as well. Yes, yeah, so there's these certain people from the rock and pop world doing something that jazz musicians find interesting and pull over into what they're doing. And so there is crosstalk back and forth. You know, Radiohead's chords are really, like what they're doing harmonically is really interesting. Yeah. And that's been of interest to jazz musicians. And so they've sort of fixated on that. And now you hear a whole bunch of younger jazz musicians who aren't covering Radiohead, but you hear Radiohead chords mm -hmm. in what they're doing. We've been talking to John Corbett, Chicago writer, curator, jazz fan, producer. Two new books coming out. He's written for, for Downbeat for years. Uh, John, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on Sound Opinions. Honor for me. Great to be here. And we want to hear from you. Where do you see intersections between rock and jazz? What was your gateway into the genre? Riff on that or anything else in the music world by calling 888-859-1800. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the desert island and play a song we cannot live without. Jim, this week it's your turn. Greg, I'm going to continue with this theme about uh, how a rock fan can get into jazz. And one of the big gateways for me was the MC5. What, you say? Godfathers of punk rock? Let's not forget that on the MC5's first album, Kick Out the Jams, recorded live at the Grandy Ballroom in Detroit, there is a song that is credited to the MC5 as writing with Sun Ra. 
the story of the song Starship is is interesting. The MC5 took a poem that Sun Ra had written and took the spirit of his wildest free-form music, especially those years when he was in Chicago, 45 to 61, and, and kind of built on that a real rock-jazz merger. Now, the MC5 had a lot of things in their mix. This is a Detroit band of working-class kids who grew up listening to Motown and soul and R&B. They loved that stuff. They worshipped Chuck Berry. But there was a serious jazz influence. Guitarist Wayne Kramer and Fred Sonic Smith, they were really big on Sonny Chirac and John Coltrane and Albert Eiler and Sun Ra. The vocalist named Robert Derminer was such a big jazz fan when he needed a stage name, he called himself Rob Tyner after McCoy Tyner, the jazz pianist. What they were trying to do in rock and roll is what's erroneously called by many bands jamming today. Mm. But they were trying to jam in the way that the Coltrane or Coleman at their wildest jammed in that free jazz experience of almost leaving your body, leaving the earth, leaving the stage. Now, that's what Sun Ra was all about. This is a guy who was born in Alabama who fashions this mythology about himself that he is actually from Saturn and not a human being, but a member of the angel race. He played with these big stage shows, lasers, lights. He was one of the earliest people in jazz to turn to the synthesizer, a lot of mythology, a lot of costumes, and a lot of really great music. And I can't tell you the number of people I've met through the years who said, I got into jazz, and especially Sun Ra, by listening to the MC5. This is an eight and a half minute track, and it's absolutely insane. We can't give you all of it, but I think you'll hear that connection, which is exactly what we were trying to get to with John, where jazz and rock meet and both come out better for it. It's uh, Starship by the MC5 on Sound Opinions.
Starship by the MC5, <laughs> recorded live 1968, my Desert Island jukebox pick. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Love that, Jim. And uh, next week's show, you're going to love that, too, because it's songs celebrating Mother on Mother's Day. As always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, and our intern, Alex Claiborne. Sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi guys, this is Dan from Chicago again. Uh, just wanted, I wanted to call and tell you I was delighted to hear you guys did a little segment on Ringo's induction of the Hall of Fame. But I was disappointed you guys are not uh, mentioning the new album, which is called Postcards from Paradise. Actually, getting some pretty good reviews, and uh, as a big Beatles fan, you know, Ringo's voice is like a security blanket, and uh, I like it, but uh, I'm sure you guys are both probably too trash for that one. But uh, I'd be very curious to hear what you guys have to say about it. Thanks. It good work. Hi, this is Erin from Raleigh, North Carolina. I've been listening to your show on people who were in bands and then went on to have a solo career. And I need to make a really unpopular comment about Paul McCartney. I think the truth about the Beatles is that, with the exception of George Harrison, all of their music, the best stuff they ever did, was when they made it with each other. I think George is going to be the great everlasting musician from that group. I don't think it's going to be Paul. I don't think it's going to be John. it, It grieves me terribly that... We'll never know what he could have done. Unfortunately, I think the thing that Paul has done the best is he survived. Um, I wish I could say something kinder, but I really can't. His best work was clearly done when he was writing with John. Have a great day. Thanks for your show. Bye. My sweet Lord. Mm, my My name is John Wagner. I'm in St. Louis. Just got through listening to your show regarding solo careers. And one that I like is Danny Elfman and Oingo Boingo. A little bit different career path than usual going off into uh, doing composing and, and that type of thing, but really enjoy his career as well.
guys have a great show. I've become addicted recently, and it is uh, one of the better podcasts I've heard on music. Thanks. Bye. Hi, this is Elizabeth calling from Nashville, Tennessee. I was hurt by what you had to say about NSYNC and boy bands. I mean, NSYNC was a horrible band. I can't, there was no defending NSYNC whatsoever. I couldn't wait for the boy band era to end. I just really want you to listen to their five-part acapella harmony on either Oh Holy Night from their Christmas album or I Thought She Knew from their No Strings Attached album. And then I want you to rethink your words. I thought she knew my world revolved around her. My love light burned for her alone. But she couldn't see the flame, only myself to blame. I should have known. I should have known. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.